Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi, Carly and Cece, and welcome everyone to another Books with Hook segment. As per usual, we are diving straight in. Carly, why don't you get us kicked off with the first query letter? Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia. I'm a big fan of the podcast and especially appreciate the Books with Hook segment. So thank you in advance for your feedback. Eddie Martino, a Harvard Law grad turned comedian, experiences his first suicidal thought in the middle of a performance. He pauses on stage, letting the laughter wash over him when he spies an electrical cord along the ceiling in the form of a noose, and he's taken aback at the appeal of it. In his late 30s, Eddie is not successful by any reasonable measure. He doesn't earn much more than rent money. He hardly has a relationship with his family, and he's perennially single after his one true love, Anna, disappeared years earlier. Eddie knows he has to change his life's course, starting by quitting comedy, although he doesn't know what's next. 
But then he finds out Anna has passed away and that one of her dying wishes was for Eddie to be in her teen daughter's life and asks that becomes that much more impossible at the emergence of the girl's ostensibly perfect biological father. A work of commercial fiction, if then else, 92,000 words, is that turns funny and heartwarming as well as dramatic and suspenseful and ultimately asks the question, what is family? I'm pursuing a creative writing certificate at the University of Toronto. I have drafts of two other novels completed. I'm also a former working comedian who still performs selectively. I adore those who have committed their lives to making people laugh, irrespective of the careers they would otherwise have or the state of their personal lives. For your submission guidelines, please find attached a synopsis as well as the first 10 pages. If you're interested in receiving more pages or even the full manuscript, I'd be happy to oblige. Lastly, in the midst of this pandemic, I hope this email finds you and yours well. Best regards, Caesar Cassio. Thanks, Carly. Right, Cece, let's start with you. What were your thoughts on the query letter? I love that I would have read that Cesare, and then I have no idea what's right or what's wrong, because I'm always mispronouncing words too. So I enjoyed the the query letter. In terms of the first paragraph, I've read the pages, so I know that it covers almost the first pages of the book. And I don't think we need this level of detail in the query letter. I don't think we need to explain that he was on stage, and then he pauses, and then as laughter washes over him, he spies an electrical cord. Like It's taking up a lot of space and you don't want to do that in a query letter. So I would just shorten that. If his thoughts about ending his own life are essential, then you can add that as a mention in the second paragraph, what would now be the first paragraph if you follow my notes. The second thing is that on the second plot paragraph, so third paragraph of the query letter, he mentions that Anna disappeared, right? And when I first read that, it's possible that this is just my brain being dramatic, but I thought like missing person disappeared, like seriously disappeared. But by the next paragraph, I was thinking to myself, maybe not a missing person situation. Maybe she just left him. So I would reconsider that verb because you don't want to give off the wrong impression. This is going to be a book about, you know, an an abduction or someone who vanished, and there was a police report about it, if that's not the case. I was also super confused. I'm on paragraph four of the query letter now. I was just super confused about how the daughter plays into this. Like, is it his daughter? And how does he know about her dying wish? And it's not that I would have to know all these details. I'm just having trouble figuring out how these things come together. And more importantly, how they lead to a climactic moment, which I will be like, hopefully at the edge of my seat, thinking to myself, oh my gosh, will he, and then fill in that sentence. One thing to check if to see if your query letter is working is to see if your reader can answer the question, will he, and then what will they fill out next? And that sentence is really telling. It shouldn't be anything vague. It shouldn't be anything like, will he find love? Or will he recover? Like It should be something very, very specific because specificity is key to a good query letter. And I'm not quite getting that here. I don't know if I missed anything. Another thing I would say is this. Paragraph five, if then else, 92,000 words, is that turns funny and heartwarming as well as dramatic and suspenseful. And here's the thing. That might be confusing to agents because typically when we're looking for a funny and heartwarming read, we go to one kind of book. And when we're going for a dramatic and suspenseful type of read, we go to a different kind of book, which is not to say that funny and heartwarming books can't have dramatic and suspenseful moments. But I would encourage you to figure out the tone of your book as one or the other. It doesn't mean that it can't have um, layers of complexity to it once you start reading. A great example of this 
is Ellen Hildebrand. She writes bee trees, which are really light and heartwarming, but they do tackle really serious themes like addiction, suicide. And yet she still does it in a way that's essentially a bee treat, right? So if she were writing a query letter, which she would never have to because she's the queen of bee treats, she would probably focus on the funny and heartwarming side, uh, or rather funny and uplifting. So I think that's something to for all readers to consider. The tone of your book is really, really important. And while your book may have many moments, what is the overall tone? And you know, lastly, I would say that I love the personal paragraph. I love the fact that he's pursuing a writing um, certificate at the University of Toronto. It's always great to see writers pursuing education, and it always means so much to us because it shows that you're taking your craft really seriously. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. All right, Carly, what were your thoughts? I echo a lot of the same sentiments. The This opening section about, you know, this moment on stage, it felt very much like a moment in the inciting incident, almost kind of just like handed to us in a way that felt very scene oriented. And CC always talks about scene as a great start for the book, not really the query letter. So that felt a little bit off for me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have just like spelled out that whole scene. My, so in the next couple paragraphs, we get into this problems in his life, you know, Anna, his love passed away. And, and I'm kind of just wondering why we are reading about him because a lot of this stuff is like things happening to him in a very way a way that's very separate from his own identity and this feels like we took a character or we took we took somebody and we're just kind of giving them drama to happen to them as opposed to it kind of naturally happening so I'm just kind of wondering like why this moment why now I just have a lot of why questions that I'm not really able to glean from this query letter and it might not be a manuscript problem it might just be a query letter problem but I'm, I'm just kind of wondering why are we reading about him why does it matter that this is happening to him and obviously you know the the depression and, and suicidal thoughts are a very, very serious thing. And so I'm just kind of wondering how all of this connects into this big why moment is kind of what I'm what I'm trying to figure out. And it's not that this has to be kind of like, quote unquote, depression porn or something like that, where we need to like glorify this moment of, of, of suicide. It's more like, why is it all happening now? Why is it coming to a crux, right? Because I always say with, with novels, it should, the beginning should be the most interesting point in the character's life. So it's the first time they've, they've compliment, uh, contemplated suicide. It sounds like it has. So why is it, like, why, <laughs> right? Like, why is this all happening? It's just this moment that happens on stage. Again, we'll get to this more in the, in the actual manuscript itself. So I just kind of wanted the manuscript to be a little, or the, sorry, the query letter to be a bit more streamlined in terms of answering the why question. It's not that this isn't interesting. It's just why now? Why this character? Why, why, why? Um, I, I thought the title a little bit awkward if then else I don't know if I love it it's not that I hate it it's more just like well, it might be indifferent right it's not really telling me anything so I would maybe look at that again and I usually also tell people to avoid rhetorical questions so we have Cece's kind of already tackled this funny heartwarming dramatic suspenseful comment but then right after that it says ultimately ask the questions what is family kind of you know lukewarm to rhetorical questions and I think this also comes back to the the why issues why do we need to ask this question <laughs> why are you putting it on the, the reader and the agent to answer this question. So again, I would say just, just tackle this, this query letter with a bit of a why, why this, why now lens. And, and I think that it could be a lot sharper. I agree with Cece. I think that the uh, author bio paragraph is great. Yeah. And it has a good structure to it. We are missing some comp. I didn't really, I didn't see any comps in here. So that'd be something that I would suggest finding for this, especially since you're saying funny and heartwarming, dramatic, 
suspenseful, right? Like what are the comps to that? You know, you just kind of got to really place this in the moment so we can really understand tonally what is happening. In addition, it seems like this person quits comedy. So I'm kind of interested to know why all of this query letter is also built around the comedy if they're going to quit comedy. So I'm a little bit confused about that. But in terms of comps, I was just thinking of comps. I just watched the show Hacks. And if you guys haven't watched it, it's so good. It's just not like a direct comp to this. But I love that it's like the behind the scenes of the comedy world. And uh, and, and you'll see kind of in these opening pages as well. Like we're kind of behind the scenes in comedy. So I, I like that we're tackling another side of comedy. So Hacks was really great. Obviously, Mrs. Maisel is a historical comp. But there's a lot of like behind the scenes in comedy comps. If this is a comedy book. But if not, I think you need to find some other comps that are non-comedy Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, let's get your thoughts on those opening pages. Let's do it. And before I start, let me just say Hacks is great. I love Hacks. It works so well. Everyone should watch it. And I love like the whole Gen Z and wait, I don't know what the other generation is. Is she a boomer? I don't know what she is. So like boomer Gen Z, like that's just such such a great mix. Anyway, okay. For the listener, we have Eddie on stage making jokes and he's clearly in his element. And we do see that moment where he sees a chord and thinks about about ending his own life briefly, the moment that we talked about in the query letter. And then around page four, we move to a dimly lit bar next to the comedy club where he's talking to his friends. So that's essentially like the the plot. My big note would be, I don't think we need four pages of Eddie on stage telling jokes. It's not that the jokes um, bothered me. It's more that it's taking up a lot of space. And, you know, one of the things we always talk about in the first page is that it's important to see your characters, uh, your protagonist, um, interacting with their surroundings. And to be fair, Eddie does interact with the crowd, but an interaction where the protagonist is on stage and in control isn't quite the most interesting interaction because there's very little vulnerability. Even if we are in his head and we do see really serious thoughts. There were a few moments where maybe the protagonist could have made the scene a little bit better with inner life, but then I feel like we didn't take advantage of them. So for example, there's a moment where Eddie thinks, was he hoping she was single? And this is about Anna, who by the way is not a missing person. And then he asks, or would he be happier to learn that she was in a lengthy loving relationship living in a mansion with a half dozen perfect children? I didn't love that these two things were framed as a question. Like I, I just, I felt like it, it's almost like we were removed from his mind and it's, we were in his mind. This is third person close and all we get because Anna you know Anna supposedly called and he's wondering like how Anna is like all we get from from that is are these two rhetorical questions that basically the reader is going to be asking anyway I felt like you know it was a missed opportunity so I wouldn't start with him on stage and if you are going to start with him on stage I wouldn't start with him you know spending four pages making jokes just because I don't think it's the best use of of the valuable real estate that's your first five pages and then also when he is in the dimly lit bar talking to his friends we find out that a fellow comedian has died and it you know Eddie's Eddie's thinking about it and he's he's still processing it which makes total sense and then I'm this confused and I'm, I, I hope Carly can clarify this for me but there's a line where he says then he wondered he is Eddie then he wondered how his death would be received by the comedy community this line follows all about this comedian who died right and I'm wondering the his death is it his death Eddie because he thought about taking his own life like is he thinking about how his own death would be received is he making it about him which would be totally fine because that's what people do that's normal and human and perfectly believable or is he thinking about how his friend's death is going to be like it could be both 
both based on the wording and I have no idea and it wasn't clear. And I think it makes a big, big difference, right? Because in one case, you're connecting it to his own thoughts about taking his life. And on the other case, you're just thinking about your friend and not really making the connection with the thought you just had on stage, which was a really dark thought. So this is all to say that confusion should never be felt experienced in the reader unless it's your intention as the author. And I don't think it is. So I would clarify that line for sure if you want to keep it. Okay, those are my thoughts. Just on that, something, you know, if you've only got one narrator, if he's going to be the main narrator throughout, you can avoid these kinds of misunderstandings by writing it in first person. So um, my question to the author is, why have you written this in third person close when it's just one narrator, when I feel like first person would work so much better here and it certainly is going to avoid those kinds of, of misunderstandings. So that's my question. But Carly, what were your thoughts on the opening pages? liked that we started in this comedy moment. I thought it was really interesting and unique. Again, it makes me worried, similar to the query letter, that this book is framing itself as all about comedy and stand-up comedy when actually it's not about comedy at all. So that actually worries me a little bit. But I do like this opening because stand-up comedy is stressful. Like if you've ever gone to watch stand-up comedy, like I have sat there being so nervous for the comic and sometimes the comic's trying out new material and like they're awkward and I don't know, there's something like very human about stand-up comedy and I find that kind of endearing. That said, this is too long. This section's too long, right? And these jokes aren't even bad. These are actually funny jokes. So I think it's just like, hit the hot jokes here, get off the stage, right? So that's all we need, right? And as a comic, that's what you need to do, right? You hit the jokes and you get off stage. So I think that's what this this opener needs to do. So yeah, just make it shorter. That's, that's basically it for me. Um, in terms of the comedy. And then I would say, yeah, get off stage, go talk to your friends as fast as possible. Cut this backstory blip on page four here, the like reflecting on Anna's message and voicemail and things like that. Cut that. Just go from being on stage, being with the friends, um, and just really stay in the moment and kind of make all of this a little bit shorter. One of the things that that Cece and I talked about in the in the webinar that we did about openers is that you need to change locations. That's a kind of an important thing that, that Cece is such an expert at explaining but you know we're we're on stage right and then we need to get off stage and we're also in this comedy moment so it's almost like in these first five pages from like a, a scene point of view we should be on stage off stage and then back in his car or back on the bus or back on subway you know like I think we need to change scenes faster to get the mind moving faster of like everything that's spinning in his head this seems just like old men sitting together at a bar right after that and we're like well what's what's happening right so I think just moving us in terms of you know actually where we are would be a, would be a lot more important. And that's that's kind of it for my notes. I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily a project for me or anything like that, but I think it has some potential. Perhaps finish the chapter with his, his thoughts of Anna after being on stage, after being with everybody, because that kind of leads you into the second chapter and and the curiosity yeah. there. Yeah, it could also be like so he he he's on stage, then he's talking to his buddies, and then he gets in his car or the subway or the streetcar, and then he's thinking, oh, what would have what Anna would have said about my set? Just do that. And then you could talk about Anna. Yeah, perfect. All right. Cece, would you like to read the next query letter for us? All right, let's do it. Dear Ms. Lira and Ms. Waters, I have so enjoyed your query feedback segments and would value your thoughts on my letter. Given your interest in upmarket fiction, I would appreciate your consideration of the reappearance of Hazel Ames, my 67,000 word upmarket novel with a near historical setting, which would appeal to readers of Cara Wall's The Dearly Beloved. Since being forced to surrender her baby for adoption eight years earlier, Hazel Ames has lived a transient existence. 
She moves from city to city, subletting other people's apartments, and works as a Kelly girl, filling other people's roles. But in the summer of 1961, when she takes an assignment at a private college in Boston, she loses her ability to remain anonymous any longer. Hazel becomes devoted to her new boss, the provost, and to his grown son, who is blind and struggling to gain autonomy. When a scandal erupts involving a professor and a student, Hazel's boss comes under scrutiny for hiring the professor. Pressure from parents, the media, and the board of trustees mounts, jeopardizing the livelihood and possibly the life of her boss, putting his son in a precarious situation. Though she'd lost the fight to keep her own child, Hazel's ready now to stand up and protect those she's come to care for. The reappearance of Hazel Ames melds the era and the troubled, complex protagonist of The Queen's Gambit with the institutional reckoning of Me Too, like all girls. I have already consulted a blind sensitivity reader on the manuscript. This novel is inspired by my experience as a temp, as well as my years as the assistant to an academic dean. I hold my MFA from Virginia Commonwealth University, and while there was awarded the AWP Intro Journals Project Award. My viral blog post, The Winter That Nearly Killed All of the Moms, received 160,000 hits in a week. When I'm not writing... You might find me baking pies or training for a 5K. I do not consider these to be mutually exclusive. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my husband and three sons. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your consideration. Name redacted. Cece, thank you. Carly, why don't you give us your take on the query letter? I really like this title. I think this is a super catchy title. I really like this one. So that's, that's a keeper for me. In terms of the length, 67,000 words, uh, it's a teeny bit short. Teeny, teeny, teeny bit short. In a short novel, things have to happen. You know, they like there is no time to waste, right? Like we have to be moving through a lot of stuff. I always say in terms of length, you know, people always ask, what's the right length? What does it need to be? You know, what's your cutoff? And I always say the right length is the exact length that your book needs to be and the length that you need to take to tell the story that you need to tell. And that's hard to know, you know, but ultimately 67,000 words is definitely on the short side of things. It's not impossible. Under 65, I would say would be questionable, but we're over, we're over 65, we're at 67. So again, I, I, I don't think there's an issue necessarily just based on seeing those numbers in front of me. It really depends on how the story is told. So that's kind of a red flag, but kind of a yellow flag that that's popping up in my head. The next thing we have a near historical setting. I would say this is definitely historical. So this is not near historical. This is definitely historical. The 2000s are now historical, right? Like the 80s are historical. The 61, definitely historical. So we don't have to say near historical. Historical is anything that has pop culture references that are not of our own. So again, ev everything, um, unfortunately, makes it feel old and it's all historical. I don't see any kind of issues in the actual query letter itself. You know, I thought it, I thought it was pretty well done. I think that it's quite obvious that what the kind of motivation is and the connection of Hazel to this boy and, and this son and kind of, you know, a parenting relationship that is not of direct lineage. Like, I think all of that makes a lot of sense to me. And in terms of that closeness and that connection and in terms of the drama and the livelihood and, and all of this, I think those are all really good motivational factors. So I didn't really have any major notes for this. I thought it was relatively strong and, and nothing that I would majorly point out. Cece, what did you think? I also agree. It's a really, really strong query letter. I, if I had gotten this, I definitely would have kept on reading, check out the writing, probably request pages because it's, it's, it's a really interesting theme. I 100% agree. This is historical. And I would say move your comps up to the first paragraph 
I've read All Girls, so I think it's I think it's a book that would that would make sense here. I definitely agree. And I like you know how you mentioned that it would be the troubled and complex protagonist of The Queen's Gambit. So that's also a great way to, to reference a TV show. Another thing I would say is I was curious about Hazel's age when I read this. So maybe you might want to, you know, in the second paragraph, since being forced to surrender her baby for adoption eight years earlier, age Hazel Ames, like for example, 29-year-old Hazel Ames, because however old she was when she surrendered her baby changes so much for me. Like it makes a big difference in terms of like character development and just, you know, knowing her age, I think would be helpful. So I guess I was curious. It's not, not a huge issue, but something to, to consider. I just want to say that the fact that you train for a 5k and bake pies and that, you know, I love this so much. Thank you. I, I want you to bake me a pie because I love pies. So yeah, I, I think this is a great query letter and I'm curious to read more. We will send you our addresses as to where you can send the pies. Right. So I've just looked up the Historical Novel Society. So just so that we, we've got this very clear, one of the broadest definitions of the genre is fiction that is set in the past before the author's lifetime and experience. Now, for those of you who are Zoomers and you're 18 years old, uh, 20 years ago is historical fiction. So they do go on to say the HNS has adopted this broader definition, accepting as historical fiction any novel written at least 50 years after the events described. So certainly by that definition, this is definitely historical fiction, as Carly said. All right, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? So just for the listener, we start off with the protagonist in first person describing intrusive thoughts. So they're saying sometimes ideas pop into my head and and then all of a sudden she's like looking down a staircase and thinking like, what if I jump? So it's an, another, not necessarily suicidal themed um, topic here, but it is intrusive thoughts is what is what I would describe. So the author names a bunch of intrusive thoughts. So they're getting into, um, you know, city corner waiting for the light to change, bus barreling down the lane. What if I stand up in front of it? When I was holding my my niece, my newborn niece, um, I envisioned dropping her into the water, you know, all these things. So these are called intrusive thoughts. So she's just like listing them and listing them. I would say this is too long. I would say pick one intrusive thought moment. I think, I don't know. I, I, I don't know which one to choose because standing at your sister's pool holding her newborn while she refreshed her drink and vision, that's kind of like murder, right? So that's like pretty intense in terms of a topic to start with versus like putting yourself in front of a bus and committing suicide. So these are pretty serious, serious things to be kind of tackling. So if this is something where you're like trying to tell the reader about this character or this life they've had, I think I just have a lot of questions about intentionality and like, what are we trying to accomplish with this intrusive thoughts opening? But I do think it's too long. And I also think it's a bit overwritten. And some, when I say the word overwritten, and sometimes I'll say this, and whether it's projections or query letters or on Instagram, overwritten to me means repetition of things where you're trying to get your point across and you're you're hammering us over the head with it from like slightly different angles. So that's kind of what overwritten means to me. So I think that all in all, this is a bit overwritten. And I think we also have a lot of rhetorical questions in there. You know, if I leaned far enough over, my weight would cantilever me over the edge. What would the landlady do? Would she go running behind me screaming? Would you pound on the door of the nearest apartment? These are all kind of like fantasies that take us out of the current moment and we're not really in scene either. So it's not that there's anything bad with this, with this opening. 
beginning, I think we just need to kind of come to what is the intention of these intrusive thoughts? What is it that you want the reader to feel? Obviously, you want them to feel unsettled. You know, that's very clear. Intrusive thoughts are very unsettling. So I think we just, you know, have a little bit of work to do there. And this, Cece and I also talk a lot about timestamps. And this book didn't have a timestamp. I think it could possibly benefit from one. There's never a reason not to have a timestamp, to be honest, especially with a historical project. There were some very obvious things that said to us, you know, this is a historical novel, things like the price of the apartment, missing out on the Nixon Kennedy debate. So there are instances that tell us this, but instead of feeling like you have to do those things, why don't you just add a timestamp? Super easy. I really liked the section that said, I couldn't imagine living in a boarding house, sharing a bathroom and a dinner table with a bunch of young girls, no privacy or independence. It was too close to a reminder of my months at St. Catherine's home for wayward girls. I liked that section and told us a little bit about the history, but like was very tied to the moment of getting an apartment is, is kind of what this is all about. Then we kind of get into mind wandering territory, which we already had a lot of mind wandering. We get into her getting into a taxi instead of taking public transit, talking about a history of music, getting into why they don't feel comfortable taking subways and public transit because, you know, just feeling like a woman out in the world is a dangerous thing. So again, it's it's a lot of mind wandering and it's nothing, nothing bad about it. It's just we're going in a lot of directions and talking about a lot of feelings. And I really just wish we were kind of in scene actually having a dramatic moment. And this kind of comes back again to the same theme in terms of the book we just critiqued, which is the, the idea of death and the character passing and suicidal thoughts and intrusive thoughts and, and all of that sort of thing. So I'm wondering almost if it opened with a scene of us witnessing something happening to somebody else and her being able to put her intrusive thoughts on an actual event in the moment in scene. I think that would probably accomplish what this author's trying to do. Again, nothing bad about this. It's more just, I'm just trying to think about how to improve this and make it a little bit more dramatic in the moment to make an ancient turn pages. But those are my thoughts. Yeah. And just to the author, don't feel bad about being told it's a bit overwritten because, you know, I've published two books, written many more, and I still overwrite like a mofo. So this is something that happens for some of us, maybe comes from a lack of confidence in in our skills or, or in the reader, understanding what we're trying to do. But this is where those other readers are so, so important. Your writing groups, my writing groups, favorite thing to do with my work is to just strike through, strike through all the time. And, you know, in the beginning, it used to drive me insane. And now I'm like, oh, thank goodness, they're taking all of that out. So once you're aware of it, just ask the people who read your work to, to particularly look for that. Okay, Cece, your thoughts? I want to trademark all of Carly's great words like mind wandering territory, you know, and I want to have books with hooks moment of all our, of all the good lines. So I 100% agree with all our notes. This is the kind of novel I like to read in terms of the themes and in terms of the, the sorts of things it's going to tackle, right? Like I, and I started out thinking, oh, I love the fact that she has, you know, these violent thoughts. It's so taboo. But after a while, I did get a little, and I say this with all the love, tired of hearing about them. You want to, sure, yes, overwrite when you're writing, but you want to cut when you're editing. And I do think that cutting here is important, both in the part where we are listening, hearing about the, the terror violent thoughts and in the scene where she's in the cab. But to get a little bit more specific, there are a few lines that I loved. So for example, I only dealt in temporary arrangements. That was short. That was to the point. Told me about the character. Voicey. Great. Imagine if you had gone on for three paragraphs about the importance of your temporary arrangements. That would have been overwriting. You did not overwrite there. So good job. Another part that I loved, you could ride a train like a yo-yo all afternoon. That one line, 
great because I also have that when I'm in a new place I can't I, I have to take a cab because I, I have the worst sense of direction on earth and I get lost even in places where I live but then you but then here you did overwrite like you went on and on and on for for paragraphs about how you have no sense of direction as well um you the protagonist so I do think that cutting is essential here I would just be like ruthless and and just strike through a whole bunch of sentences trust your reader trust your writing more importantly I also felt that this is a minor thing but you mentioned that you had you'd given the the landlady every penny you had and then you took a cab and I wasn't sure how how you're gonna pay for the cab and I started getting anxiety no, no it was that. that it was that she had all of her money in her hand that she owned but then she counded out a hundred dollars clear it's not clear on how much money she has and also i thought that was also a bit strange that you would if you're opening your purse and being like showing your landlady landlady all your money i thought that was a little bit weird too so yeah i think the money stuff could have been handled a little bit more obviously okay gotcha i did not read that right but you're right no i'm looking at him that's exactly what happened see i was just tired and reading it wrong so yeah i you know i i would cut i i think you might not be starting in the best place although also maybe you i don't know but more the the most important part to cut might be the paragraph that starts with once I had wanted to be a music teacher that is too much background information like honestly everything after that can just go as well as other cuts are also necessary this is where you're going to put on your editor hat and be ruthless and just slash all those sentences but I like the concept here I like the description of what's going to happen in the query letter so I'm curious I just think it needs a little bit of editing it's my suspicion that because this author's work is already on the short side the 67,000 words that's why they weren't ruthless in terms of the editing because they were already panicking a bit that the book's too short. And if you did a ruthless edit of this kind of work, you're probably going to end up at about 50,000 words, which means you've got to go back to structure. You've got to look at a beat kind of structure to see where you can expand on the story. So so that's kind of why I think they weren't quite as critical in, in editing as they should be. All right, we'll move on to the third query letter, which I will now read. Dear Bianca Murray, Carly Waters, and Cecilia Lira, I recently discovered your podcast and really enjoy the helpful writing tips as well as insights into the business side of writing. I would appreciate any feedback you can offer on my manuscript, Ghost of Waikiki, a traditional adult mystery. Completed 87,000 words, my book deals with themes of family, food, and culture, and revolves around a down-on-her-luck writer trying to find her way home. Rootless, out-of-work reporter Maya Wong knows a good story is like good mochi and nice chew with a hint of sweetness, the kind of stories that matter. Ever since the Metro Daily she worked for Folded, she's had to settle for freelance assignments like how to get men to swipe right to make ends meet. She reluctantly returns to her native Hawaii to be a ghostwriter for a rich, influential developer. But when an old man dies under suspicious circumstances, Maya discovers a connection between her new employer and a woman who disappeared 20 years ago. A burglar hits home and a Another body drops, but Maya can't stop digging for clues, even if the grumpy detective in charge turns out to be her ex. Convinced the answers lie in the past, she combs museum archives, trolls online databases, and spies on her employers, risking her career and her life to stop a killer. I'm a former reporter for the Sacramento Bee, currently freelancing, and a fourth-generation Asian-American who lived in Hawaii for several years as a child. I'm a member of Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime. This standalone book is the first in a proposed series. It's endorsed by mystery author Laura Jensen Walker. I believe fan of Deborah Crombie's 
A Bitter Feast or Dial A for Aunties by Jesse Q. Sutanto would enjoy my book. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Jennifer. Okay, Carly, would you like to tell us what you thought of the query letter? Absolutely. I thought the opening paragraph was a little bit vague. So we have themes of family and food and culture revolves around a down on her luck writer trying to find her way home. I thought that was a little bit vague. I think it was trying to kind of angle at the hook, but then it ended up coming a little bit, coming across a little bit vague. So that one's tough. Another way to kind of accomplish that is just putting the comps up there, right? So all of this thing, all of these things you're trying to say, like the food and the culture, down under luck writer. I haven't read A Bitter Feast, but I know Cece and I are both reading Dial A for Aunties right now. So that's on our minds. So when I'm thinking about Dial A for Aunties, I think like you just replace that kind of vague line with your comps and it kind of accomplishes what you're trying to do with those vague words. And and just to hop in there, we will be having Jesse on the show very soon as a guest. Nice. Yeah. Good, good. Good, good. Yeah, Cece and I were an editor call. Um, we were we were all raving about that book. So it's such a fun, subversive, like genre buster, and and yeah, huge, huge, huge fans. Great news. Perfect. Now for this query, I am not a fan of queries that are very choppy in terms of like the visual structure of them. This one has a lot of middle paragraphs, and some of them only are one or two sentences long, and that confuses me. I think it comes from a journalism background, which this person has, so they're trying to like get all the beats out and visually like separate them with the line breaks but I prefer it to be kind of woven in a little bit more seamlessly because this feels choppy because this also feels a bit um, synopsis to me when this happens because I feel like this person's trying to cover all the big hits instead of like weave this together in terms of like the narrative of the storytelling so, and that also worries me a little bit when I see this in a query letter because then I'm worried that the author can't write in that lyrical storytelling way so you know these are kind of things that I again not red flags more like yellow flags that I'm trying to pick apart you know what exactly is happening here so it feels pretty choppy to me but I think we have a lot of really interesting things happening here we have this job you know the person dies there's a burglar body counts things like that like I think this is all very interesting and and I do think dilate for aunties is a, is a great cop so not a whole lot of critique to this one I think I would just make it a little bit less vague and try to make the a li- make the middle paragraph the middle section a little bit more lyrical and a bit more of a storytelling element great Kali thanks Cece what did you think I'm going to share insider information here typically when we get queries uh, we read them in batches and then it goes through our queries manager and he requests stuff from the authors and then we get stuff and so it takes a while for us to read the stuff that we request which is fine because we have a lot of stuff to read but every once in a while I get a query that excites me so much that I reach out to the author directly and I'm like I I can't wait you know and just send just send this to me and I did this recently with an author I just signed because the query letter was so promising and the book just seemed so good and I got vibes I got those vibes when I read this I was reading this and I was going, oh my gosh, first of all, I was supposed to go to Hawaii and then the pandemic hit for my cousin's wedding. My cousin has gotten married and is about to have a baby. This is how long this stupid pandemic has lasted. So I love me a book set in Hawaii because I can't travel there, but I can read about it. Also, just all these good things happening. Like there are deaths and, and she's down on her luck and she's a writer and the detective in charge is her ex. Like I'm getting cozy mystery vibes. I'm intrigued. I want to read this. Lovely author, if you're listening to this, please, please send this to me. I'm very excited. I love, like like Carly mentioned, we're both reading Dial A for Antis and it's such a great book, right? So we are excited. Yeah, I, I want to read this. I can't focus on anything on the query letter 
other than I want to read this. So that's my note. I want to read this. Cece, thanks for that. Okay, Kali, what did you think of those opening pages? Yeah, so we start off in Hawaii, just kind of like taking in everything. And then we kind of get into, you know, what's going on with the career and everything like that. So, you know, pretty, pretty typical kind of opening, opening setting. I, I felt like we had a little bit of a strange genre blend here where I tonally, like I was trying to figure out what was going on. It opens with, I am the ghost of Waikiki. So like, if you were to pick this up cold, you would think maybe this is a horror or gothic mystery. And so, you know, I was really trying to figure out exactly what what we were trying to accomplish tonally. And then I'm figuring out, okay, it's about the job and the ghost writing and things like that. I almost think it's just trying to be a little bit too cutesy. Whereas like, we just have no idea what's going. This is clearly a very talented writer. Just trying to be a little bit cutesy before we're ready for cutesy <laughs> because we're just trying to figure out what's going on, right? We're just like coming to this cold, trying to figure it out. So another thing, this is another commonality between a bunch of the queries that we're critiquing today. I felt like everything that was covered in the first five pages was also covered in the query letter. And that's a bit of a trend. This has happened with one or two of the other queries we critiqued today. So I don't know if there's anything necessarily wrong with this, but it really makes me less curious for where the book is going to go. Because even if I was intrigued by the query, I'm then reading the first five pages and now I'm like just doubling down on everything I already knew. And it seems repetitive, slightly less interesting because I know what's going to happen. And I also have no intrigue for what's coming next because I everything was kind of laid out to me in the first in the query letter in the first five pages. So ultimately it feels like a bit of an info dump. And and yeah, so that's kind of how I felt about that section. The next section was there's a section I really liked. There's only so much Asian mothering a 34-year-old single gal can take, even if it is rent-free and comes with wonderful homemade food. So I really, I really liked that section. But it's a little bit passive because we're not in the present moment. We're talking about everything else that that's, that's happening. It also says it had taken nearly a month to iron out the details of the book contract. Again, all these things passive happening in the past. So I really would have just liked to figure out what's going on with this book. Like again, we, we talked about hacks a little bit earlier in the segment and hacks is a great example of that so it's like a, a somebody who really needs a job and they take this job and then they kind of get stuck in this job and they're like a little bit confused where this job's going so that's kind of what i would apply to this kind of take like a tv pilot approach and watch the pilot of hacks you know you'll kind of get what we're getting at in terms of fish out of water needs a job takes the job chaos ensues right like that's a great hook there's so much that can that can happen with that so i think i just wanted to get to that a little bit faster and it felt a little bit less interesting to me because i had known everything Thing that happens on these pages in the query letter. So that's it for me. You know, I don't have too much to say other than that. Thank you. Cece, what was your take on the opening pages? Do you feel like they lived up to the query letter? So in terms of like the, the first thing I check, right, when I get really excited about a query is can this person write? And the answer is yes, this person can write. So yay. I do agree with what Carly said though, right? Like, and when, if and when I actually talk to the author, and I hope I will, I will share this. I It's interesting because we talk a lot about the importance of not choosing a homogenous setting, right? Like make sure there's imbalance, make sure there's stress, there's strain. And internally, the character is in a place in her life where she is like taking a job she didn't want to take because she needs the money, just move to a new place, although it's back home, so it's not quite new. So these things are all interesting. However, it can't only happen internally, right? Like we need it to happen on the page as well. And on the page, it's not quite there yet. So I definitely don't think she's starting in the right place, but it's fine because you can always fix that sort of thing. All that matters is that you can write and it's an interesting premise. And so we can figure the rest of the stuff out. I'm okay with this. We can figure it out. And as a writer who works with CCI, I can tell you categorically 
publicly that she is brilliant at helping you work things out as you write. So it's a great way to partner with somebody who really knows what the hell they're doing. All right. So that's it from our Books with Hook segment. And now we go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Today's guest was born to two hippies in a small town in Maine, left the state for college, but returned to attend law school and practice law. As an attorney, she worked on cases involving some of the broad issues she writes about in The Damage. She lives in southern Maine with her husband. The Damage is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Caitlin Ware. Caitlin, welcome to the show and congratulations on the publication of your debut novel. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's always such an exciting time in a writer's life, and it feels like it takes forever to arrive because you sell the book so long before it actually gets published, and it feels like the day's never going to come, and then suddenly it comes and it's over all too quickly. Has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely. It was. It's a very hurry up and wait, and then all of a sudden, boom, gone, okay. <laughs> It was a whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, and I do, I feel for authors who've come out with books in the last year or so during COVID, it's meant you haven't been able to tour and you haven't been able to do all the amazing things that you should be doing. But your book has gotten quite a bit of buzz. I've been seeing it a lot on Instagram and it's already got amazing Goodreads reviews. A whole bunch of people have reviewed it there already. So you've already done a heck of a lot better than most people debuting right now. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think partly I, I have a wonderful team behind me in my U.S. publishing office where they've been doing a lot of work on my behalf that I just really haven't had to do. And then I, I feel like I've really been noticing that the Bookstagram community is so supportive. Like they, I think I didn't really appreciate beforehand how much work goes into like taking those beautiful photos and staging them and like thinking through what you're going to do. And then not only have they done all of that, but they've clearly read the book and written like some of the most incredible reviews that I've read so far have been bookstagrammers reviews. And so I wish that there was a way to track how much they're selling the book for me. It's incredible. I am only halfway through it. I started it on Friday and I'm actually so busy, but I still managed to get halfway through it. Uh, it's called The Damage for the listeners. It's just amazing. It's so assured that I kind of had to check three times to make sure that you really were a debut author because I didn't believe that. I thought they were they were fooling me. So let's <laughs> dive into that Thank because you. You have done a ton of things that, you know, besides being a writer myself, I teach creative writing and I always say to my students, there are things as a debut author, you really must try not to do because you're making your life so much more difficult. And you did a whole bunch of these things with your debut novel and you did it really brilliantly. Oh, okay. So, so for the listeners out there, when we say, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Remember, I always say there's a ton of exceptions to every rule. Yeah, and, yeah. and here Caitlin is showing us all of these exceptions. So we're going to go into the things that Caitlin did that I thought was really, really good. What I'd like to begin with, Caitlin, is your opening chapter. So when mm -hmm. I teach the course on writing a kick-ass first chapter, I say that there are certain elements that need to be there. There needs to be imbalance. We need to find a character at a moment of imbalance in their life. There needs mm. to be some kind of emotional shift and you need mm. to plant a very specific question in the reader's mind that will keep them turning pages. And you did mm. all of that brilliantly. So for the listeners, could you tell us the premise, the setup and the hook in that opening chapter? Yeah. So the opening chapter is the main character, Julia, arriving at a house 
that you pretty quickly learn is a detective's house. And I think in the first chapter, you already know that she has received a phone call from him where he says he's dying of cancer and he really wants her to come and talk to him about the last time that they were seeing each other. And I think in the first chapter, you know that he was investigating a crime that was committed against a family member of hers. You don't really have a lot of the information about, I I can't even remember if I've told you who the family member is. You don't really have a sense in that first chapter of whether she's still married or what has happened with her husband. All you really know is that he's asking her all these questions about how her family is doing, but he doesn't ask her about the man that she was married to at the time. And she feels like this is kind of rude of him. And there's just kind of a lot of like personal setup between the two of them where you're not really sure what their relationship was like, what he was investigating and why he wants to talk to her about it now, years later, while he says he's dying. And maybe even in that first chapter, you might already be wondering if he's telling her the truth anyway. (laughs) But basically it's that they're setting up having a conversation with each other that is going to span the course of the book and hopefully is going to keep readers feeling like what is going on and what is going to end up happening and what's going to happen in the future once everything is over, because most of the book is taking place at the time of the crime and in the aftermath of the crime. Right. So the very specific question the reader has, because we meet Julia and she's going to this detective's house, but she's really nervous. Like you can see she's (laughs) in this moment of imbalance and she's kind of worrying about what does he know? What is he going to ask her? So we immediately have tons of very specific questions. We are like, what is this crime that happened? We are like, Mm -hmm. why is she worried about it if this thing happened ages ago? And we are asking like, what is the dynamic between the two of them? Because it feels quite personal. So we have so many questions. And what's amazing that you've done is that debut writers or emerging writers tend to load up with backstory up front because they kind of feel like the reader needs to know a ton of things in order for the reader to be invested. Now, was that at all a mistake you made in early drafts, giving away too much information and then having to take it out? Or was that something you were very cognizant of as you went into this particular kind of story? I definitely had done a ton of research online and like continued to, as I wrote all of the different drafts of it. And I was aware of the concept of info dumping, but I still did it a lot. It's just really hard not to do that. And you'll think, well, I'm not doing it here. What I'm doing is really clever. And it's not like you're totally info dumping and you just need someone else to read it and to say to you, this is way too much at once. You know, here's how you can spread this out over multiple chapters. I do think for the most part, I didn't do too much of it in the first chapter ever, but in those first few chapters afterward, I definitely, like maybe the first three chapters after the first one, I was info dumping like crazy um, because I was trying to explain what the family looked like and what was happening with the detective. And it was just, and so much about the, the character who actually is the victim of the crime. I was trying to give you a lot of information about him up front, and it just was, those chapters were too long and there was too much happening in them. So I did eventually have to pull it back. But for some reason, my first chapter, I think always was pretty mysterious. (laughs) Yeah. 
And you know what? It just proves time and again to say that readers don't need all this backstory to become invested in the character. So like Nick, I was really invested in Nick just to know that there was this guy that he really liked and this guy was kind of, you know, playing with these feelings and messaging occasionally and other times not messaging. And any person has been through that. You know, it doesn't yes. matter. It doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight or whatever the case may be is we've all liked someone more than they've liked us. And we've all been yanked yes. around. And yes. just, just based on that, like I was already on board with Nick. I didn't need to know yeah. anything else about him. I just saw him being vulnerable and I just already loved him, you know? And so yeah. it's just give readers something vulnerable about a character that they can connect with and the rest can wait. And in fact, the more you can withhold information, the more the readers turning the pages to try and figure out the puzzle piece. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. And with him, he originally, I had like multiple scenes in that chapter with him where you were in class with him and seeing how goofy he is and a different set of friends he had. And like, it was partly because I loved the character and I wanted you to see what he was like at a baseline as a person before this thing happens to him. But exactly like you said, you you didn't need all of that. And just leaving that one thing that has happened to everyone where they're getting strung along by someone, you're like, okay, I really relate to him. And I really like, I want him to be okay. I want to root for him. And okay. So you did two other things that I tell my emerging <laughs> writing students not to do. And you did them both so well. We'll break each of them down. The one you did was you began in 2019, Mm -hmm. which is four years after all of this stuff took place, which then essentially means that everything you're telling us is backstory. Yeah. But but you avoided the whole backstory pitfalls by then creating dual timelines. So instead of us being constantly in 2019 and they're constantly flashing back and remembering things that happened in 2015, you immediately set it up so that we have these two timelines that are very, very clear. Present day, Julia, when she's talking to the detective, and then we have 2015 when all of this stuff takes place. Was that again a structure that you worked out early up front because it's not the easiest to do or did you start kind of having these flashbacks and then realizing you were going to need two totally different timelines I always had two timelines but the the wonky thing that I did to start was I originally had set the book like so that the the 2015 stuff was what I would have thought of as present day and then the future scenes were set really far into the future even from us and the feedback that I got from um, some really early readers was the idea that these scenes are taking place into the future immediately makes me want this to be a sci-fi and it isn't. And even the little bits of technology that you're talking about, like that he has some sort of medical condition. So he has medical care or, you know, she's thinking about a cell phone and things like that. It's going to mess with the reader's head the whole time they're reading. And so I had to change the timeline that I was working with maybe on the second draft, or it might've even, actually, I think it was the third draft. I think it took me a long time to finally agree to do it because it was going to be so much work. (laughs) I kind of had to like re-research everything I had written to make sure that what I had written about the criminal process was still going to be accurate in 2015 versus 2019 when I was first writing the book, that kind of thing. But I did start off with two clear timeframes 
because of exactly what you said, a little bit of backstory is fine, but you can just lose yourself so easily. And even if you want to write in past tense, and then you're writing backstory, you end up with those really awful had hads and stuff like that. (laughs) From the very beginning, I was like, they just need to feel like you're just going to have to get used to oh, if I'm in the room with Julie and the detective, that's a separate time. And and that's the only thing you ever see in the future. So it hopefully kind of helps you keep them separate in your mind. Yeah. And that's something, you know, if, if you are having things where there's a lot of flashbacks and you start off in the past tense, like you say, it becomes super awkward in terms of the tense <laughs> usage and the had been yeah. and the had hads. And then I say to people, just start off with the damn present tense so that the past is just simple past. But having those dual timelines gets rid of a lot of that. So you wrote all of it in past tense, even like yeah. the 2019 stuff. But yeah. because it was a completely separate timeline, it made sense that that was just in simple past tense when we went there. That was a great way to around that. And, you know, here's the thing. So many writers tend to, just because a story happened in a linear way, that's how they structure the story on the page. Because obviously all of this started in 2015. The stuff happening in 2019 wouldn't be happening if it weren't for what happened in 2015. And so people will kind of structure the novel from then, have everything unfold. And then in the middle of the story, they'll jump to 2019 and show us all the conversations between, you know, Julia and the detective, but that takes away so much of the tension and our questions. So, you know, just because something's happened in a linear way, doesn't mean that that is how your structure should be. So always structure your story in a way that's going to create tension, have the reader asking questions and be like, what happened in the past? Why? And then, and then we find out. So that was really, really smart. And then something else that you did that I say to students is so difficult is you wrote four main characters in third person close. Yeah. So we have Julia, we have her husband, Tony, we have Nick, who's the victim of the assault, and then we have the detective. So yeah. you alternate chapters between four of these characters in third person close. Can you tell us a bit about how that evolved? Was that always your structure or, or did you start with one or two and then expand? How did that happen? So I actually had a fifth point of view person who got cut. It was too much and he wasn't, he was really kind of so the the person who eventually is arrested for the assault had his own point of view and i got what's called a revise and resubmit so now i'm slightly hopping ahead in your conversation but i got a revise and resubmit from a really great agent who said he's not adding anything to the story because of blah 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 i i guess i shouldn't talk too specifically just in terms of plot if you want to read it but what he was he wasn't really adding much to the story and so she was like you should ditch him. And it's actually going to be better without him. I decided that she was completely right. And so I cut him completely from the um, novel as a point of view character. And so now I, I just had four point of view characters, but like you said, they all kind of have their own character arcs. They all have pretty strong stories that are happening. Um, None of them really feel completely like side characters. And so I really liked that. And I've read, I mean, a really simple example that comes to mind is I feel like Stephen King often can get away with writing stories like that. And I was reading some of him at the time that I was writing the first draft. And so I felt like I'm just going to do this and see if I can get away with it. 
And it definitely was a little bit tricky later on when I was trying to find an agent for the novel because I was finding it really hard to write a, a query letter that told what the book was about and made it clear that Julia is ultimately like the protagonist of the story if you're only going to pick one protagonist. Because you'll see even the way that the book is advertised by my publisher, it talks a lot about the two brothers. It talks a lot about her husband, Tony, and her brother-in-law, Nick. And so, um, and then when you read the book, Detective Rice has a pretty important part and he has probably even more point of view chapters than either of the brothers have, maybe not, but it's, it's a lot. And so it definitely is a slightly like risky call in terms of being a debut author and trying to convince an agent and then editors like, no, no, let me have what's pretty close to an ensemble cast of a novel. And I think the way maybe that you can get away with breaking that rule is by ultimately being able to say this one person stands out as the protagonist because blah, blah, blah. Like this is the ultimate thread or arc of the story. And this is why that person is the one in control of it or the one that things are happening to the most. And so I think that's why it ended up working out okay. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. And do you have a a copy of like one of your first query letters that you sent out to agents that you would be prepared to share with our listeners just for them to have a look at how you worded it? Absolutely. I, I'm not shy about my query letter at all. It doesn't give away the whole book, but it gives away probably like the midpoint of the book, but I don't mind doing that. I would just say, tell your readers not to open it unless they don't care. Yeah. I. <laughs> but, oh, I'm happy to do that. I think that writing that query letter was one of the hardest, hardest things. I honestly, I mean, writing a novel is harder because it takes so much longer and it just takes a lot of like discipline and that, but honestly, writing that query letter was one of the hardest things. It was just brutal. And I always recommend to people that they use um, Susan Dennard. She has a website. I think it's just susandennard.com. And she has really great resources, including a free query letter, like example, maybe it's an example. And it's also kind of her teaching how to write one. And that's what I used that it took me a while to get it right, but that was like a really huge um, resource for me. I'll plug that now and I'll send mine totally. <laughs> and then just one yeah. last question. So were you ever tempted to write any of the characters in the first person or when you began writing all of them, was it very clear in your mind that you would be writing them like consistently in this third person close? How did you decide on the point of view? I actually just really prefer third person close. I read plenty of novels that are in first person, but for some reason, I just really like third person close. And so I actually never, I don't think I ever played around at all with first person. And so that's always how it was. And I think there's, I don't know how to explain it, but there's something about the slight bit of distance that you get from the third person that I think is kind of, on the one hand, I see a lot of thrillers written in first person because it gives you that sense of urgency. Like it puts you into the character's point of view. And if it's written in um, present tense, it feels like it's happening to you. But I like that third person close because the close part, you can still give a lot of what the person is thinking and let you get to know that character really well. But it's a little easier to hold out on the reader without feeling like you had to really lie to them. <laughs> Yeah. And so I think, I think third person makes it a little easier to hold information 
for when you want to reveal it without feeling like you just were lying in earlier chapters where it makes no sense that this person wouldn't have said this in first person. (laughs) Yeah. And, and also writing, you know, four distinct character voices in first person is a lot more challenging because of course, each of of their voices would be so different and the language they choose would be so different. So that just gives you a huge challenge right out the gate. Whereas I think it's much smarter to do an ensemble cast like that in third person close. Yeah, I think you're right completely. I don't know that I could have done it really. (laughs) Caitlin, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Like I say, it's such an assured debut for our listeners. Please go out and, and get it. Yeah, just thanks for coming on the show and thanks for sharing your experience with us. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. This was really fun. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all-about-memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. 
Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.